Hello everyone. Happy Wednesday, you guys. I hope you all are having a great week. Hope you're staying safe. Hope you are staying sane. I can't even fathom the fact that it is almost June. We're like almost, we're less or maybe more. I don't know. I'm not great at math. Something around that. Less or more than two weeks right outside of June. And that is absolutely insane to me. Obviously, it's been such a crazy, crazy past couple of months. So the fact that we're about to move into June when I feel like it's still February is very trippy. But with that all being said, a little mini rant aside, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, episode. Today we are talking about Jeffrey Epstein. If you live in the United States or even it's a great possibility that even if you live outside of the United States, you probably have heard of the name Jeffrey Epstein. And if you haven't, we're going to be talking all about him today. So by the end of this, you will definitely know more than you do now. Jeffrey Epstein was an extremely powerful man who worked as a financier. And due to his job, he had many connections to extremely powerful and wealthy, high-profile people. And in July of 2019, Jeffrey Epstein was actually arrested for sex trafficking minors. And while awaiting trial, he ended up dying from what was a very, very controversial death that people have had a lot of questions about. But that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the corruptness and the lies and the shadiness of this case. And this case has so many different pieces and layers to it, and the story in and of itself is extremely shocking and disturbing, which is why I wanted to share it with you today. And I know this is a pretty different case from anything else we have ever covered on Killer Instinct. However, because it involves and exposes such a corrupt and heinous crime, honestly, with such high profile and unexpected people, I thought it would be very interesting to cover this case today. So you guys can let me know in the emails that you send me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com if you enjoy hearing about cases like this, if you enjoy kind of going outside the murder missing persons cases and going into something a little bit different and more in this realm. So you can let me know. Either way is good by me. You guys just let me know what you want to hear. But with that being said, let's just jump right on into it today. So Jeffrey Epstein was born on January 20th, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. He was born to his parents, Pauline and Seymour Epstein. His mother was a teacher's assistant as well as a stay-at-home mom, and his father worked as a landscaper and a gardener for the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. Jeffrey was one of two boys. He had a younger brother named Mark Epstein, and him and his family grew up in the Seagate neighborhood of Coney Island in Brooklyn, New York. So something about Jeffrey is that he was extremely intelligent. So intelligent that he ended up skipping two grades of high school and graduating at the age of 16 from Brooklyn's Lafayette High School. And after he graduated at 16, he ended up going to a school called the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art in 1971. This school is also just known as Cooper Union and it's in Manhattan, New York. So Jeffrey went there for a little bit and then shortly after Cooper Union in that same year, he ended up attending the Corinth Institute of Mathematical Sciences at NYU, New York University. Jeffrey attended NYU for about three years before leaving without graduating in June of 1974. Now, a couple months after leaving NYU, Jeffrey actually became a teacher at the Dalton School, which is located on the Upper East Side of New York, and Dalton is a very 
elite school. It's a private college preparatory school. It's fairly big. It's located in four different buildings. So Jeffrey started a job working there in about September of 1974. However, a little less than two years later, in June of 1976, Jeffrey was actually fired from the school for poor performance. Now, what's interesting about this is that before Jeffrey left Dalton, he actually made a pretty interesting and prominent connection with one of his student's parents. Now, this student's parent's name was Alan Greenberg. Alan Greenberg was the chairman of an investment banking company called Bear Stearns and Alan thought that Jeffrey was really smart with money and intelligent with numbers and because of that Alan ended up giving Jeffrey an assistant job at Bear Stearns in 1976 and even though Jeffrey just started out at Bear Stearns as an assistant to a floor trader he ended up quickly gaining leverage and status at Bear Stearns and eventually started working his way up and advising some of the company's wealthiest clients about six years into working with Bear Stearns, Jeffrey actually left the company, and it was later thought that the reason he left was for some sort of violation. That was kind of the rumor floating around. And I want to mention that Bear Stearns, just to give you kind of the idea of what the company was like, it was an extremely high-profile, wealthy company. It ended up getting sold to J.P. Morgan when the financial crisis hit in about 2008, and J.P. Morgan bought Bear Stearns for about $236 million. So working at Bear Stearns was a very good job for Jeffrey to say the least, but like I said, after six years of being at the company, Jeffrey actually left Bear Stearns and started his own consulting firm called Intercontinental Assets Group Inc., also known as IAG in 1982. So if you're unfamiliar with what a consulting firm is, because I was also very unfamiliar, a consulting firm is basically a business that is built of industry-specific experts who give their advice and guidance to businesses who need them, essentially. So that's what IAG was, and that's what they did. And even though Jeffrey had founded his whole new consulting firm, he still remained pretty close with Alan Greenberg as well as the CEO of Bear Stern named Jimmy Kane up until Bear Stern ended up going bankrupt and getting sold in 2008. So even though he had left the company and reportedly had some violation, he did maintain his connections. Jeffrey had some pretty high-profile clientele at IAG. This included a Saudi Arabian businessman named Adnan Khashoggi, whose net worth was about $4 billion, with a B, in the early 1980s. And then in 1987, Jeffrey actually met a man named Stephen Hoffenberg, and Stephen was the former chairman of a company called Tower Financial Corporation. Stephen actually hired Jeffrey in 1987 and ended up paying him $25,000 a month, which is equivalent to $56,000 a month in today's terms. And Jeffrey was paid this for his consulting work. And then in 1993, Tower Financial Corporation actually blew up as having one of the biggest Ponzi schemes. And if you don't know what a Ponzi scheme is, because again, I did not know either, it is essentially
especially when you have a schemer or a fraud in a company who tells people, you know, for example, like I can make you a bunch of money really fast. You know, if you give me a hundred dollars, I can give you back 120 next month because the more money you invest in us, the more money I can earn for all of us essentially. But the trick in the Ponzi scheme is that instead of actually earning money, it's essentially just stealing money from all of the investors and the money all the investors give to the schemer. And once the Ponzi scheme gets too many investors, the system always crashes because the investors expect more money to be given back to them and they will grow impatient and the schemer will eventually have no money to give back to them because not only is he giving away the money that's been given to him to all the other investors to get them off their back, but they're also saving a little bit of money for themselves as well. So that's what happened here. And because of this Ponzi scheme of Tower Financial, the investors of the company ended up losing $450 million, which is equivalent to about $796 million in today's terms. So this happened in 1993, but Jeffrey actually ended up leaving the company in 1989 before the Ponzi scheme ever came to light. But Stephen claimed that Jeffrey was the one behind the Ponzi scheme and was heavily involved in it. But because Jeffrey had already left the company in 1989 before any of this came out, he was never charged for being involved in it. So after leaving Tower Financial Corporation, Jeffrey ended up founding his own financial management firm in 1988 called J. Epstein & Co. Now this was a very, very elite company. As you can tell by everything that we've talked about, we're dealing with companies who handle very extremely high numbers in terms of money. There is a lot of money being thrown around in these businesses, and this was no different. So J. Epstein & Co., like I said, a very elite company, and it had extremely high qualifications in order to be taken on by them as a client. One of these qualifications was that the client had to have a net worth of at least $1 billion in order to be taken on by Jeffrey's company. So because of the fact that Jeffrey only accepted elite billionaires as his clients, pretty much all of his clientele list has never been released to the public. The only publicly known client was a man named Leslie Wexner. And if you've never heard of Leslie, he was actually the founder and CEO of L Brands and Victoria's Secret. And to give you a little bit of context, Leslie's current net worth is about $4.1 billion. So Jeffrey and Leslie met in 1986 through some mutual friends, and about a year after the meeting, Leslie had hired Jeffrey as his financial advisor, and it was about a year later after that when he granted Jeffrey full power of attorney over his affairs, which essentially means that Jeffrey had the right and the power to hire and fire people from Leslie's companies. He also had the power to sign Leslie's checks. He had the power to buy and sell properties for Leslie. He had the power to borrow money for him and literally do anything else of a legally binding nature on the behalf of Leslie. Then in 1995, Jeffrey was also promoted to being a director 
founder of the Wexner Foundation and the Wexner Heritage Foundation, which were both obviously Leslie Wexner's foundations. So Jeffrey ended up making millions of dollars from managing Leslie's financial affairs. And with being Leslie's right-hand man, it also gave Jeffrey access to Victoria's Secret fashion shows, gave him a lot of time to be around aspiring models and the Victoria's Secret models as well. So then in 1996, Jeffrey ended up changing the name of his company. So like we said earlier, it was originally named the J. Epstein and Co. And then it was changed to the Financial Trust Company. And he also based the company out of the Virgin Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands for tax purposes. And he actually was able to reduce his federal income taxes by 90% from just moving to the U.S. Virgin Islands, which some would say is a very smart move financial wise, but a lot of people People know that there is way more to the story as to why he chose the U.S. Virgin Islands and what else was waiting for him there. But before we get into that, now we move into the early 2000s. And in the early 2000s, Jeffrey continued to grow his business through working with multiple financial media companies. He developed security fundings and he invested in hedge funds and startups. And along with that, he also founded his own nonprofit organization called the Jeffrey Epstein Six Foundation. It's six as in the Roman numeral, so it was Jeffrey Epstein VI Foundation, which was created to donate millions of dollars to multiple institutions, including Harvard University. So listen, I know that might have felt kind of like a drag to go through and talk all about Jeffrey's businesses and his career and all of that, but I think that it's important to know the backstory here, just like in any case that we go over. And it's also important because Jeffrey's wealth has been a huge center of controversy in the sense that no one really understands how Jeffrey himself was able to gain so much money. There have been multiple theories as to why and how Jeffrey made his money, but to this day, no one's ever been fully clear about it. Literally, if you look up Jeffrey Epstein net worth or Jeffrey Epstein money, most of the articles that will pop up will be, how did Jeffrey Epstein get all of his money? How did Jeffrey Epstein obtain so much wealth? No one can really figure it out. So to this day, it's very unclear how Jeffrey was able to make so much money and where that money originated from. So with that being said, it's pretty clear that Jeffrey had some power in the business world. And because of that, he was also linked to some very powerful people and famous people as well, very high profile people. This included former President Bill Clinton. It included Kevin Spacey. It also included President Donald Trump and Prince Andrew and more. There's some that say that Jeffrey was linked to Bill Gates, and there's some that say he was linked to Woody Allen, some that say he was linked to Elon Musk. So I'm telling you this because I want you to understand again, not only the amount of power that he had as a businessman, but also who his friends were on a personal level and who his connections were too, because those were also just as, if not even more powerful. So Jeffrey knew a lot of people who were very high profile, and would probably not want a lot of their information to be out and released in their dirty laundry to be aired into the public. So like I said, when Jeffrey opened up J. Epstein & Co. and he opened it in the U.S. Virgin Islands, he also ended up purchasing a 72-acre island for about $7.95 million, and this island is called Little
Little St. James. And when Jeffrey purchased this island, he completely renovated it and reinvented it. And to this day, no one really knows other than the people who have visited the island and just kind of some he said, she said back and forth what the inside of the buildings and the rooms look like. Like I said, there's just been some he said, she said about this and some hearsay from people who claim to be former employees who have said that, you know, in the main residence of the island, Jeffrey had two different offices that no one except the maid on the island was allowed to enter into. A contractor who worked for Jeffrey on the island actually came forward to say that all throughout the home on the island, there were photos of topless women as well as fully nude photographs. There was also something else really bizarre on Jeffrey's island, and that was that there was this temple that he had there. And to this day, no one really knows what this temple was used for. And some people have said that it was a place for Jeffrey to play and practice piano because that's something he liked to do a lot and he was actually classically trained to do so. And some people have said, you know, this temple was just used as a gym, but other people have come forward and said that there's actually a wooden door with a lock bar on the door handle on the outside of the door, which has brought up a lot of speculation of the intention of this. Because if you think about it, if you put a lock bar on a door on the inside of the door, think about it like a hotel room. If you know, when you go into the hotel room and they have the little lock bar that you can put on um, and you can slide through that way, you know, no one can come in. It ensures you that if someone tries to open the door, no one can come in. But if you put it on the outside of the door, it almost makes it seem like you were trying to you know, not let anyone out. Because if you wanted to keep people out of the temple while you were inside of it, you would put the lock bar on the inside of the door. However, this lock bar was located on the outside of the door. So with that whole backstory being said, which again, I told you this and I told you the entire backstory just because it's super important. Like those details are very important into understanding what we're about to talk about, which is Jeffrey's sex trafficking ring. And in order to talk about that, there are some people we have to mention. That way you kind of know who's who in this situation and who had what role in all of this. Now, the first person that we are going to talk about is a woman named Ghislaine Maxwell. Now, Ghislaine is not only an ex-girlfriend of Jeffrey, however, she was also one of the main recruiters of this ring. So, Ghislaine is a British socialite, and when she came to the United States, that's where her and Jeffrey really hit things off. And once this whole sex trafficking ring came into play, Ghislaine allegedly played a huge role in recruiting underage girls. She would scope them out and track them down. She would approach them. She would ask them questions about themselves, kind of like emotionally grooming them, and would also tell them about Jeffrey and how he was this great guy who could help them in whatever way they wanted, whether that was their career or financial help or really anything, you know, education, anything. Ghislaine said that he could do it all. What would then happen is Ghislaine would take these girls and bring them back to Jeffrey that way he could use them for himself, or for lack of a better word, give them off to his very high-profile friends to also sexually assault and rape. It's also been speculated that Ghislaine herself was also involved in some of the sexual assaults on the young victims. It's been alleged multiple times that Ghislaine had joined in on some of the sexual assault acts with Jeffrey. And I think what's really, really, really important to note here is that Jeffrey had a type. He had a very specific type, and that type 
was anyone under the age of 18. Ghislaine and the other recruiters would go out and find girls who were as young as 12 years old. We're talking 12, 13, 14, like I said, under 18, and some were even over the age of 18 that were being trafficked through this ring. However, the majority of the girls were underage and were minors. So the next person we need to talk about is a man named Jean-Luc Brunel. Now, Jean-Luc is a French modeling agent and scout. So him and Jeffrey actually met in the early 2000s, and it's alleged that Jean-Luc would send the young girls that he was scouting, girls, like I said, as young as 12 years old, to Jeffrey. A survivor of the ring, a woman named Virginia Goofrey, claimed that Jeffrey told her that he had slept with over a thousand young girls, a thousand of the young girls that Jean-Luc had sent to him. And Jean-Luc allegedly had a very similar grooming style. He would lure underage girls in by offering them modeling jobs, telling them that he could make them loads of money, and they would be incredibly successful in their career. And once he was able to lure them in, he would allegedly give the girls to his friends for sexual purposes, and one of those friends was Jeffrey Epstein. Now, when Jeffrey was eventually arrested, John Luke ended up coming forward and denied any involvement directly or indirectly with Jeffrey's crimes. It was reported that Jeffrey had invested up to a million dollars in Jean Luke's modeling agency when it first started being launched. However, Jean Luke denied any of these allegations, but then it was a little contrary because in 2015, Jean-Luc ended up suing Jeffrey, claiming that his business lost millions of dollars due to the publicity of Jeffrey's crimes. So how did this ring operate? That's the next question. So from what we know, Jeffrey would have his recruiters go out and find young underage girls. And a lot of these recruiters ended up being girls that were prior recruited, if that makes sense. So some of the girls that would go out and recruit younger victims had already been recruited themselves. Now, when it came to Jeffrey and his own sexual assaults and rapes, the most common story that has been heard is that Jeffrey allegedly had a massage room in his home. The victims would be brought to Jeffrey's massage room and were told allegedly to give Jeffrey a massage, and that would then lead to the young girls being sexually assaulted or raped by Jeffrey. It has been said that no matter where Jeffrey went, he always had girls ready for him. Jeffrey has been accused of having an addiction to underage girls, and so everywhere he went, whether it was Paris or his island or anywhere in the United States or literally anywhere in the world, he would have his recruiters find young girls that would wait for Jeffrey and his friends wherever he landed. So Britain's Prince Andrew has actually been among those that have been accused of being involved in Jeffrey's sex ring. That same survivor that we talked about earlier, Virginia Goofrey, has come forward and said that she was trafficked to Prince Andrew on three different occasions. Her experiences in the sex trafficking ring originally started with just Jeffrey. However, she was then assaulted by Prince Andrew. Now, Prince Andrew and Jeffrey had met through Ghislaine, and the two of them had become extremely close. You know, they vacationed together, and Prince Andrew traveled on Jeffrey's private jet on multiple different occasions. Virginia said that when Jeffrey gave Virginia to Prince 
Prince Andrew, Jeffrey told Virginia to come back with potential blackmail material for Jeffrey. And this was a very, very common thing that Jeffrey did. Jeffrey wanted blackmail material on every single person that he could. And the reason that he did this was probably for two reasons. First being, you know, if he ever needed a favor from any of them, if he ever needed a favor from these very high profile people who have endless resources, he had the blackmail in order to do anything that he wanted. Secondly, was that if he ever felt like he was being threatened or his sex ring was being threatened, he would also have a lot of blackmail on these very high profile individuals who do not want their dirty laundry airing out. So other men that have been accused of being involved in the ring are Marvin Minsky, who was an extremely wealthy scientist, George Mitchell, who was a former U.S. attorney and was a Democratic Senate majority leader, and a special advisor to Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton was also accused of being involved in the sex ring as well. Bill had traveled on Jeffrey's private jet at least 26 times. Now, several of these trips were made to promote one of Bill's charities that he had going on, but there were tons of other flights that had happened that flight logs have noted that Bill Clinton was on. Now, Bill has been adamant on the fact that he has never been to Jeffrey's Island or any of his residences besides his New York apartment only one time in 2002 with his security team present. Now, despite this claim, a survivor of Jeffrey Epstein has also claimed that she did see Bill Clinton on the Little St. James Island. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. Donald Trump has also been someone who's been linked to Jeffrey in the past. In 2002, Trump did an interview where he said, quote, I've known Jeff for 15 years. Terrific guy. He's a lot of fun to be with. It's even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side, end quote. Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein have been photographed together multiple times in Palm Beach, Florida, where one of Jeffrey's homes was located. And I'm unsure if you guys remember this, but in 2006, there was actually an anonymous accuser who tried to sue Donald Trump by saying that he raped her at a party that Jeffrey Epstein was having at his home in Manhattan in 1994, when this girl was only 13 years old. But this lawsuit just eventually dropped. And once Jeffrey Epstein 
Epstein was arrested, Donald Trump came forward and said that he barely knew Jeffrey. He knew him just as well as everyone in Palm Beach, which whatever that means, and that he didn't remember ever having any pictures with him or having a very close relationship with him at all. He was very much just trying to disassociate with Jeffrey Epstein altogether. So now that we've named some of the people who were the perpetrators in this sex trafficking ring, I want to name off some of the survivors who have come forward. And I just want to apologize ahead of time if I mispronounce any names. I sincerely apologize. I'm not trying to. But we have Courtney Wilde, Michelle Licata, Virginia Goofrey, Jenna Lisa Jones, Sarah Ransom, Maria Farmer, Annie Farmer, and Jennifer Arayos. There are also multiple Jane Doe's out there and women who have wished to remain anonymous as well. Courtney Wilde met Jeffrey at a time in her life where she says that she was craving stability after suffering from family problems. Jeffrey saw her vulnerability and he preyed on it. Courtney said, quote, Jeffrey preyed on girls who were in a bad way, girls who were basically homeless. He went after girls who he thought no one would listen to, and he was right end quote. Michelle met Jeffrey when she was 16 and a sophomore in high school, and she was brought back to Jeffrey's home in Palm Beach. Jenna Lisa Jones had her first encounter with Jeffrey when she was 14 years old and said that she was paid $200 to give Jeffrey a massage, and during the massage, she told her to remove all of her clothing. Virginia said that she met Jeffrey at a bar that she was working at called Mar-a-Lago in Palm Springs and was recruited by Gil- Elaine Maxwell to be a masseuse for Jeffrey. Virginia said, quote, I went from an abusive situation to being a runaway to living in foster homes, end quote. Virginia settled a lawsuit against Jeffrey in 2009. Virginia said that she was forced to have sex with Jeffrey and was also given out to his friends to have sex with as well. Sarah met Jeffrey when she was 22 years old, and even though she wasn't a minor, she was flown out to Jeffrey's island and forced to have sex with him and his other friends that were brought along as well. Sarah also settled a lawsuit with Jeffrey and Ghislaine. Maria Farmer met Jeffrey when she was 26 years old, and the following year, she claims that both Jeffrey and Ghislaine sexually assaulted her, as well as assaulted her underage sister, Annie, at Jeffrey's New Mexico ranch. Maria did go to the police, and when she told the police, they told her to go to the FBI, and it's reported that Maria was the first person to report Jeffrey to the police. Jennifer met Jeffrey when she was 14 years old after she was recruited by a woman outside of her high school in New York City. She was told about Jeffrey and how he could help her in her career as an aspiring Broadway star. For the following year, Jennifer went to Jeffrey's home once or twice a week where she was sexually assaulted by him and eventually raped. So those are just some of the stories from the women survivors who have came forward against Jeffrey. In March of 2005, there was actually a 14-year-old girl who confessed to her parents that she had been taken to Jeffrey's home by one of the recruiters and had been given $300 to strip for Jeffrey and massage him. When this happened, the girl's stepmother contacted the Florida Palm Beach Police Department, and the police and the FBI conducted a 13-month investigation of Jeffrey as well as his multiple different estates. The police interviewed five alleged victims of Jeffrey and then a following 17 witnesses. When police searched through Jeffrey's home, they found a high school transcript and other items in Jeffrey's trash 
showing that some of the girls that were at his home were under the age of 18, the youngest being 14 years old. The police also found two hidden cameras in Jeffrey's home, as well as a bunch of photos of the girls he would have over at his house. Throughout this 13-month investigation, the FBI compiled reports from 34 confirmed minors who had given authorities many details about the sexual abuse they endured while being with Jeffrey. It was discovered that Jeffrey had been recruiting young girls from multiple different countries around the world. In May of 2006, the Palm Beach Police Department filed a probable cause statement stating that Jeffrey Epstein was going to be charged with one count of sexual abuse and multiple counts of sex with minors. However, the state prosecutor at the time, who was a man named Barry Kreischer, took it a step further and presented evidence from over two dozen victims to a grand jury and got a single felony charge for Jeffrey, which was solicitation of prostitution, which Jeffrey entered a not guilty plea for a couple months later in August of 2006. So here's the thing. The Palm Beach Police Department thought that, that with the severity of Jeffrey's crimes, they were being way too lenient on his punishment. And that's when they pushed for the FBI to get involved, which they ended up doing, and they launched their own independent investigation. Then in June of 2008, following the plea deal that was made, Jeffrey was charged with a lesser charge of solicitation of prostitution involving a minor. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 18 months in prison, and he also had to register as a sex offender. So the plea deal allowed Jeffrey to only serve 18 months in prison, but it also basically shut down the investigation that the FBI was continuing to do to see if there were any more victims or any more people of power who took part in Jeffrey's ring. This included thousands of emails, court documents, and other records that were just gone at this point because that was part of the plea deal that Jeffrey took. But Jeffrey didn't even serve a whole 18 months in prison. He actually ended up only serving 13 months of his 18-month sentence, and when Jeffrey was released from prison, people were really, really upset about this. They thought that with the amount of evidence that had been brought forward by so many of Jeffrey's victims and the severity of what the authorities were finding on him, that a 13-month sentence was absolutely unacceptable. And like I said, Jeffrey had to register as a sex offender, which required him to check in with the NYPD every 90 days to verify his address. And when doing this, he actually never checked in with the NYPD one single time, not even once. So Jeffrey was clearly finding loopholes and just breaking rules left and right. And for a long time, survivors of Jeffrey said that they thought that he was just going to get away with all of this forever. The retired Palm Beach police chief actually came forward and said, quote, this was not a he said, she said situation. This was a 50 something she's and one he. And all of the she's basically told the same story, and end quote. And this was in reference to all of the victims who had accused Jeffrey and Jeffrey being referred to as the he in this situation. A lot of these victims didn't know each other and they had never met each other and they basically told the same story to authorities. Detectives were really shocked by the amount of young girls who had been coming and going from Jeffrey's houses all day, every day, and no one thought anything off-putting about it whatsoever. Because think about it, you have this old 
older man and constantly young girls are just walking in and out of the house and no one says anything. But then in November of 2018, the Miami Herald actually published an article, which is an extremely interesting article, by the way, and I highly recommend you go check it out. But when the Miami Herald came out with this article, it basically went over Jeffrey's history of sexual abuse allegations. And this kind of started the fire again from people who wanted justice for all of Jeffrey's victims. And that justice was eventually served. So on July 6, 2019, Jeffrey Epstein was arrested and charged with several counts of sex trafficking and conspiracy to commit sex trafficking. Jeffrey pleaded not guilty, but was facing about 45 years in jail if he was found guilty. And Jeffrey was 66 years old when he was arrested for this. So he was definitely going to be placed in prison for the rest of his life if he was convicted. Jeffrey was arrested at his New York City townhome. And when the FBI and police raided his home with a search warrant, they found thousands of sexually suggestive photographs of young girls. Authorities also looked into Jeffrey's safe where there were not only more pictures being held of young girls, but also $70,000 in cash and 48 diamonds. There was also a fraudulent Austrian passport that had expired in 1987. And I will say, just because this is a rumor that's been floating around a lot and a theory, a part of the whole Jeffrey Epstein scandal, is that a lot of people believe that Jeffrey Epstein could have been a part of the CIA. And this Austrian passport, this expired Austrian passport, was one of those pieces of evidence that people use to support this theory, but nothing has ever been proved of that. Then on July 8th of 2019, prosecutors charged Jeffrey with sex trafficking and conspiracy to traffic minors for sex. The grand jury indictment alleged that dozens of underage girls were brought to Jeffrey's home for sexual encounters, and Jeffrey was being held with no bond and was awaiting a trial date. But then something happened. So on July 23rd of 2019, Jeffrey had been found injured in his jail cell at about 1.30 a.m. He'd been found on the floor of his cell with marks around his neck that were similar to those that would be found in a suicide attempt if you were to try and hang yourself. So his cellmate at the time was actually a former NYPD officer who had been charged with four counts of murder. So because of his history of murder, his cellmate was questioned and he denied having any involvement in this accident. Jeffrey actually was able to live through this and he didn't end up passing away, but after this accident had happened, Jeffrey said that he remembered nothing about it. After this incident, Jeffrey was placed on suicide watch because no one really knew what happened to him on July 23rd and if he had tried to hang himself or if he was attacked, they decided the best thing to do was to put him on suicide watch, which he was on for about six days before being taken off and placed in a special housing unit. In the special housing unit, Jeffrey had a cellmate, and the protocol for this particular unit was that a guard was supposed to look into the cell every 30 minutes to make sure that everything was okay. Now, on the night of August 9th, 2019, Jeffrey's cellmate was actually transferred out of Jeffrey's cell, and there was no new replacement brought in. I'm not exactly sure why the cellmate was removed from Jeffrey's cell or why there wasn't another person that came back in and replaced him, but that is what happened. So Jeffrey was in his cell alone. Along with that, the two guards who were supposed to be on watch that night and check on Jeffrey every 30 minutes 
had actually fallen asleep and had failed to check on him. And at first, these guards came forward and said that they hadn't checked on him for three hours, but later we learn that those three hours actually were eight hours. So instead of being checked on every 30 minutes like he was supposed to be, he went eight hours without being checked on. And to add one thing on top of another, the two cameras that were in front of Jeffrey's cell just so happened to not be working that night. So at about 6.30 a.m. on August 10th, 2019, the guards went to check on Jeffrey for the first time in eight hours, and that is when they found Jeffrey dead in his cell. Emergency responders were called, and Jeffrey was taken to the post Hospital. However, they were unsuccessful in the life-saving measures that were used on Jeffrey, and Jeffrey had passed away. Jeffrey's death was ruled a suicide, and an autopsy was conducted, and it was found that Jeffrey sustained multiple breaks in his neck bones, as well as what's called the hyoid bone, which is a break in a bone that can occur from those who hang themselves, but they are often seen broken in victims from homicide by strangulation as well. On August 16th, 2019, Jeffrey's death was ruled suicide by hanging. Now, there have been a lot and I mean a lot, a lot, a lot of controversy surrounding what exactly happened to Jeffrey the night that he died. A lot of people believe that Jeffrey was murdered, and they believe this because Jeffrey was going to be going to trial, and Jeffrey knew a lot of powerful people. We just went through a lot of them, billionaires, politicians, and those were just the ones that we were aware of. And if someone was out there who was afraid that Jeffrey was going to talk or spill or air their dirty laundry, and they didn't want that to get out, they could have pulled the resources that they had just to make sure that that didn't happen. And a lot of people believe that that's what caused all of this. And Jeffrey's defense attorneys were really not happy with how quickly Jeffrey's death was ruled a suicide and then just kind of tossed to the side and not looked at twice. The Department of Justice Inspector General and the FBI were both ordered by Attorney General Barr to investigate Jeffrey's death. And when they did this, they found that the two guards, like we said, that they were supposed to be watching Jeffrey every 30 minutes, had actually falsified their records and hadn't checked on Jeffrey for eight hours. Now, a lot of people believe that this is because these guards were either tipped off or paid off or somehow got information to not check on the cell that night. That way, someone could come in and murder Jeffrey. It does seem very interesting how not only did the guards not check on him for eight hours, but also the cameras weren't working and Jeffrey's cellmate was removed and never replaced, leaving Jeffrey completely alone in his cell. However, regardless of these speculations, there are people who believe that he did just commit suicide and that he knew that he was going to be spending the rest of his life in prison because there was a lot of damning evidence against him and it was very probable that he was going to just go away forever and so he thought that the best way was to just take his life and not have to go through that. So a lot of people do think that it's as simple as Jeffrey killed himself and the circumstances surrounding him were just coincidences and then like we just said, there's a lot of people who believe that there's no such thing as a coincidence, especially not in this case. I think this case is so shocking because you always hear about how there's a lot of darkness and shadiness and how corrupt and dirty some of these businesses can be, but to actually hear the details and to see how long it went on for is really disturbing and mind-blowing. I'm really interested to hear your guys' theories as far as Jeffrey's death goes. Do you think it was a suicide? 
or do you think it was staged? Do you think that there's more to it? Was there someone behind it? And if so, who do you think that person was? I know this case has a lot of layers and there's still so many other women out there who haven't come forward to share their story, which is completely understandable. It's just sad to think about everything that happened to Jeffrey's survivors. It's completely disgusting to think that this was happening and no one was listening to these women and no one was listening to the victims who were, you know, coming forward and saying and sharing all these experiences and no one believed them. So with that being said, I want you guys to send me your thoughts on this case. Let me know what you think. I'm really stumped. I'm not sure where I really fall on the line of whether or not I think that Jeffrey committed suicide or if I think that this was something far more sinister than that. So you can email me your thoughts at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. And with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. I will be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk soon. Bye guys. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.